I have some really exciting news for listeners of the Lifestyle Investor Podcast. Most people think lifestyle investing is about making more money or creating additional passive income streams. And while that is part of it, the most savvy lifestyle investors understand that having a solid tax strategy is fundamental and really foundational to creating wealth. I firmly believe that having the right tax strategy is the single best investment that you can make. I know tax strategy isn't the sexiest topic, but once you understand a few key elements to the IRS playbook, the compounding benefit you receive year after year is enormously significant. In fact, we have members inside the Lifestyle Investor Mastermind who have used these strategies and have saved hundreds of thousands of dollars, and in some cases, millions of dollars. This is not a nice to have if you're interested in growing your wealth. This is a must. In our brand new tax strategy masterclass, I have hand-selected and shared the details of the 28 most valuable strategies to help you increase your tax savings this year and for years to come. Plus, if you want to hire a top-tier tax strategist, it can easily set you back tens of thousands of dollars, if not more. And you want to make sure that you have the best, most accurate information to ensure that you're hiring the right person for you. That's why we included a whole section with advice, resources, and multiple interviews with my personal tax specialists to help you build a bulletproof tax team, but for a fraction of the cost. The entire tax strategy masterclass was designed for people like you who want to keep more of their hard-earned money without having to sift through the complicated tax code. If you're interested, head over to lifestyleinvestor.com forward slash tax to learn more about the course or set up a free consultation call with our team at lifestyleinvestor.com forward slash consultation. Again, that's lifestyleinvestor.com forward slash tax. This episode is a little different than our usual format. Every once in a while, I plan to share a bonus interview with one of our Lifestyle Investor Mastermind members. While we limit the number of people who can join the Lifestyle Investor Mastermind each year, this is your opportunity to get a peek behind the curtain and discover what the smartest investors and entrepreneurs are doing to 10x their wealth and freedom. Let's get into it. Levi Benkert is the founder and CEO of Harbor Capital, a real estate private equity shop focused on industrial properties in Texas. Levi has bought, managed, and developed over $400 million in real estate properties in his 20-plus year career, and in this episode, he's going to share the secrets to his success. You'll learn why he prefers Class B industrial real estate investing to other real estate asset classes, how he acquires properties with minimal risk and big returns, strategies for reducing your taxable income, why it's still possible to find off-market deals, and so much more. One more thing before we get to today's interview. Levi's team is putting together a free guide all about investing in industrial real estate, specifically in the state of Texas, and what makes it such a strong state as well as such a strong asset class. To get access to this gift, visit lifestyleinvestor.com forward slash 173. Thanks for listening. And without further delay, my conversation with Levi Benkert. What's up, Levi? So good to have you on the show. 
Thank you. Man, I am excited to be here. We've been talking about this for months and finally get a chance to do this. It's great. We have. We have. Well, you know, it's funny. It takes a little time to get it in the schedule. But I mean, we have so many conversations. We just met up for coffee the other day and uh, over at the Soho House and just got a chance to kick it with some nice weather and catch up and hear about life. And every time we talk, I feel like there's content that is relevant, like, oh, we should have recorded this. This would have been great on the podcast. So I'm glad (laughs) to have you on now. We caught that three weeks in Austin where the weather's really nice, just perfectly, just sitting there having breakfast, like you can hear birds chirping. It's great. It's about to be like death heat oven coming here soon, but it's it's nice to enjoy the, the little break in the middle. <laughs> That's right. Well, and, and once the heat comes, we like to get out. So we're going to go to Iceland. We're going to go to Portugal. We're going to live on a... Uh, live in yacht this summer. So we got a bunch of uh, cool trips on the dreams list that we're going to do. And we like doing that to get out of the Texas heat, but I would rather be hot than cold. I will say that. Oh, that's inspiring. Sounds like fun. Can't wait to see the pictures. (laughs) Well, you guys do a good amount of travel too. I mean, here, here, this is going to be fun because we not only get to talk investing and business and entrepreneurship, but we get to talk about travel and cool things. I mean, you've been all over the globe. I'd love to hear about some of your uh, favorite spots you've been. So we have four kids, two in college and two at home in high school. And that was kind of a a early thing Jesse and I said when we got married and set out, started having kids is we wanted to, we wanted them to see the world. So our claim to fame is when our oldest went off to college, he had seen 27 different countries already by the time he left the house. So (laughs) fantastic. Yeah, we've been, we've been all over the place. That is so cool. I love it. And my wife and I really said the same thing, that we're not going to let kids or family stop our travels of the world because that's one of the best ways to learn about people, cultures, just everything. And what a great education that is. Like your children are so blessed to have that opportunity. Definitely. Yeah, so cool. So you have really a fun story. So we did our Lifestyle Investor Mastermind Retreat, and that's where we learned first about your story. And and by the way, you and I, we met through a mutual friend, Hans Box, who, mm-hmm. man, I've met so many cool people through Hans. Uh, such an awesome guy. Great guy. And yeah. And, and so I remember, you know, we we ended up meeting up for a little breakfast coffee the, the first time. And I was like, this guy's legit. I, I want to learn more <laughs> about your story And I'm excited that we're now doing these Lifestyle Investor podcast member highlights. So as a member, we get to spend some time digging more into your story and hear more about what you do and and even your experiences with the mastermind. But we learned at our retreat, since you spoke on a panel at our retreat in December, about a really tough season of life professionally and how that really transformed you into who you are today and the business that you run today. And I'd love to have you share how you even got into this world of investing. I mean, you're you're one of the best that I have found in industrial real estate, but I, I'd love to know how you got there. How did it start? That's a good question. Yeah. How far back to go? Weirdly, was fascinated with learning, but realized real early on that I was not going to get there through the traditional channels. It wasn't it wasn't fast enough for me. And so I actually did not make it through eighth grade, but instead tested out. In eighth grade, I tested out and basically finished high school by testing my way through it. And then 
just went on this journey of learning and I've read, I mean, I've got, I've kept every, every book I've ever read and it's, it's in the multiple thousands at this point, everything from biographies to, you know, self-help and just business books and accounting and kind of everything in between. And so I, I, you know, still to this day, I mean, I was read for a long time this morning, actually. It's been something that's just been a a passion of mine is continuing to learn and learn at at whatever kind of the fastest velocity possible is. And so Jesse and I got married real young. I was 18 and we just got right to it. Had our had our first. Uh, he was born a couple of days after our first anniversary, and started doing business right away. So started a coffee shop. Ended up being a chain of coffee shops that we sold, small chain of coffee shops, and then started flipping houses. Kind of w- <laughs> went on from there. Ended up growing into this very large business that was. Uh, the business at first was buying land, rezoning it or, or kind of developing it, getting it ready to build and then selling it to home builders. And then that turned into actually buying a home building company, bringing their whole team on staff and and doing a, you know, basically kind of soup to nuts, we call it. You know, you, you buy the land, you entitle it, you do all of the land development and then actually put houses on it. Got a little ways into that in 2008 and then the market crash hit banks called all the loans and had to go through this just painful painful process of negotiating with lenders talking to equity you know friends family uh, equity, you know, participants in the deals and tell them that the money had been lost. You know, you want to talk about a sh- uh, forming, shaping season in someone's life, have them lose everything and, and kind of see what comes out of it. There was nothing left. I was just this like raw shell of a human at the end of that. But so incredibly thankful for them. I mean, just the, to this day, many of the investors that we work with now, some of whom lost very large, you know, multiple millions of dollars on those deals back then are still some of our biggest investors today. Learning how to to vet deals and know, assume that the market can kind of do its worst to you around the corner is one of the best experiences. Of course, I would never, you know, if I could go back and talk to myself in 2007, I would I would tell myself to sell everything right then. But I don't think if had I done that, that I would be the investor that I am today and be as cautious as I am today. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those things where in the moment, it's the most painful thing ever. But once you get past it, it's one of the most defining things or moments ever, which is great. I've had some pretty tough moments as an investor as well. And those for me have been the source of my greatest education and wouldn't trade them for the world. But in those seasons, they're tough and they they test you. There's no doubt about that. And here's something I want to just float out there, because I think a lot of people are unaware that banks can just call your loans whenever they want to. So let's say you're not even in a bad situation, but the bank is in a bad situation. The banks can call these loans, can they not? Yeah, they can. I mean, there's always some, pretty much every loan that's out there is in some form of technical default uh, or another. You you know, they've got all these, you know, when you go sign loan documents, there's hundreds of pages long. If you were to go through those with a microscope and, and take out every sentence, there's always something in there where they say, ah, but they didn't, you know, they didn't send this document in on time. And so therefore, because of this. And so when the bank is in trouble or they're starting to have, you know, cash crunch situation, they go back out and look at the deal deals that they've got on their books. And they have this incentive to clean up their books as quick as possible. And so if they've got a 
a development loan on a property that maybe in three years is going to be fine, but right now is really bad. The bank does not want to carry that on their books for three years because that's a negative. And so it's in their best interest to just take a loss in this quarter, show some bad results, and they try to do it all at once. They just want to get it get the bad news out so we can start the good news train again. I mean, it's just like Facebook did recently where they you know, took these big write downs and all this stuff. I think it was back in January. They basically were like, hey, we made some bad moves. Let's pay for them all right now and set aside all this money so that we could start looking better and better. Banks do the same thing. And often that means them calling up their borrowers and saying, hey, you know, that line of credit that we extended, we're no longer extending that because you, you know, didn't send us this document on time or you know, the market shifted a little bit because of that. We're, we're no longer your lender. Well, and we're in an interesting season right now where banks are under the microscope as is. Their financials yep. are weak. I mean, they've been weak for a long time. I did a podcast episode like three years ago where we started dissecting and I, I talked about how insolvent a lot of these banks are. Like the solvency ratio in the U.S. across the board is just atrocious, yet people just look the other way. Yep. But it's now true. it's coming into fruition, right? And so we've seen some mm -hmm. of the biggest banks in like the history That's of true. the United States fail. <laughs> That's true. I mean, this is this is big. And and I don't think we're at the end of it. Like I right. think there's more carnage with these right. banks. Uh, I'm curious your thoughts on that. I'm not a banking expert, and so I, I don't pretend to, to I don't even play one <laughs> on Twitter or anything. So I don't pretend to to know what is happening, but I do know that it's pretty easy to go in and look, you know, because all these banks have to post their financials publicly. And so it's pretty easy to go in and look. And, and and for us, we made some shifts. There were some banks that we had accounts with that weren't as strong and we moved it, kind of moved up the chain a little bit to some bigger ones. And that's made us feel a lot better. But I mean, I do think, you know, from what I'm reading, a lot of the pain is past and that, that we are, are likely out of the woods. We're not going to see another, you know, Silicon Valley Bank or anything like that happened. But yeah, I mean, that was a, a scary little season we were in there for a bit. Well, there's no doubt. And and if you look at even some of the real estate that's out there that's using short-term lending, bridge loans, floating rates, there is still mm -hmm. a lot of reason for concern with some of these smaller banks, the regionals, the local banks that have some pretty big real estate portfolios, especially in that commercial real estate sector. Mm -hmm. It's true. Yeah, it's definitely true. So it'll be interesting to see how it all plays out. So I'm curious, why did you have so many investors who invested big early on? And by the way, what a great lesson the financial crisis gave us back in, in 2008. But you had so many that said, you know what, I trust you, you have integrity. What was it that kept these investors confident enough to move forward on your next deal when the last deal did not go well? Yeah, communication was a big part of it. I mean, we I was on airplanes, on phone calls, talking directly to every investor, talking through the situation, getting there. It was a surprise to no one. As soon as we got notice from the bank, I sent out long emails and got on the phone and talked to them and said, hey, we're, here's what's happening. Here's how we're going to plan on dealing with it. Do you have any ideas? What do you think we should do? And really involve them in this process to say, hey, things don't look good here. This is definitely not part of the plan. I can't just pretend that this is fine. It's not fine. Let's talk about it. So I feel like what a lot of investors, well, a lot of 
operators who take investors will do is things will start to go south and yet all their updates are like everything is fantastic we're doing another little top off raise if you want to put money in there but the returns are going to get even better on this one and you know smart investors learn to look for those signals and see that hey something's actually not right here instead i just was very very clear open and just transparent with them about what was going on so that when things actually did start to become a real problem, no one was surprised. No one said, oh my gosh, where did this come out? You know, this came out of nowhere. I mean, for a while there, I was sending updates every week explaining the situation. And so everybody knew they, you know, they had options. They could come in. And in some cases, they the investors said, hey, I actually believe in this property. And instead of letting it go to the bank, I'm going to come and take out the loan here because I want to own it and held on to those ones for a long time. And to me, I'm like, this is fantastic. Here's all my documents. Happy to, you know, I want to I want to see that those investors get as much of the, the value out of this as they can. But I mean, just for scope here, I'll pick one project that I was doing. It was a 32 home development, land development, bought an old trailer park, cleared it off, did all the site work, put in, you know, curb gutter, sidewalk, drains, everything, electricity, then started to build. I think we had six or seven of the 32 houses done. I had $6.7 million in that property at the point when the bank called the loan. So some of that was debt, a bunch of it was equity. I think it was about 50-50. So, you know, call it three three and some change of each in there, $3 million. The bank ended up forcing us to do a short sale on that property for $520,000. Oh my goodness. Like that's how far the market fell. Less than 90, you know, more than 90%. So it was sold for less than 10% of just the cash we had in it. It's incredible. <laughs> Unreal. Yeah. Oh, that is brutal. I had an offer. This is the the thing that, you know, in hindsight, I wish I could have told myself to do. I had an offer in early 2008 from an international group that was coming in. They went and found out all the properties that I owned because it was one neighborhood that I bought just about everything. It was about $400 million worth of development that was that I owned that was going to be built. Kind of the end value was 400000 One group wanted to buy all of it and put an offer in, I would have walked away. I mean, it was incredible. It's like, it was like three X everyone's money could have cleaned and walked away, but did not happen that way. Well, those are great lessons where you learn when you get a win, you take it right. No one ever is faulted for taking profit when the opportunity is there, because if you don't, it may be a dud down the road. And we've seen this happen through history time and time again. You know, we've seen this happen the last 10 years. You could do hardly anything wrong, but we're starting to see what happens as the tide shifts with the economy. And, uh, you know, Warren Buffett always says it, that you, you'll see who's swimming naked when the tide, you know, goes out. It's true. It's true. Yeah. It's scary. No kidding. Do you love the podcast and the book and wonder what the next step should be on your lifestyle investor journey? For a limited time, my team is doing free personalized consultation calls to learn more about your goals and determine which of our courses or masterminds will help you get to the next level. Whether that's to make your first investment or to create your first income stream of passive income, or whether that's to achieve ultimate financial freedom. If you'd like to reserve a spot, Head over to lifestyleinvestor.com forward slash consultation to book a free strategy session while they're still available. Again, that's lifestyleinvestor.com 
forward slash consultation. So one of the things that I love about you and about your company, Harbor Capital, that you started, and I'd love to hear the story of like how you decided this and and move specifically into industrial. But one of the things that you guys are fantastic at is monthly updates. Yeah. So I have a rule that if I can't get quarterly updates, that at a minimum <laughs> needs to be there. If I can't get yeah. quarterly updates, I do not yeah. want to invest. Like that is like any group should be able to provide quarterly updates. So when I find anyone that is providing monthly, <laughs> monthly. updates, that really excites me. And, and I feel a lot more comfortable because I'd rather have over communication than under communication, right? Yeah. So let me give the elevator pitch on Harbor Capital, actually. I've realized we haven't even haven't even dug in on what that is. So I always joke around, we're an inch wide and a mile deep in one market that we are just learning more and more and more about it. And the deeper I get into this market, two things. One, realizing I'm glad we're here and want to do more of it. And two, finding that there are so many different ways for us to maximize kind of a depth of industry knowledge to get better and better deals done. And so we buy class B industrial properties in, we're only in two markets, San Antonio and Houston. That's it. We've looked at some stuff in Austin, our base out of Austin. We've looked at some stuff here. There's certainly a few properties that we'd like to buy here, but we know what we know and we know it extremely well. And we'll continue to just keep going into it. So we buy industrial buildings. This could be warehouses or manufacturing facilities. A lot of them are multi-tenant, like a whole bunch of small tenants. Some of them are kind of big single-tenant buildings. We buy them either vacant or under leased, do some sort of value add, and then either sell it or hold it long-term or kind of agnostic on that front and find that, that you know, it's one of these markets that's just kind of overlooked there's not that many people that are buying. So when we come in and buy, there's not a lot of competitors who really understand the value of these properties. Some neighborhoods, we've got five or six properties in the same area. So when we go put an offer in, we know what we can rent it for. We often have a tenant already in hand that we're, we're leasing to. It's fun. It's a fun market. So Yeah. I mean, it's a great way to do it. I know we were talking about a deal recently where you know, you, you had an offer. Well, someone was supposed to come in and rent it all and then decided yep. like last minute, mm. I don't like how far this is of a drive or from, from my house you know, where yeah. I live. <laughs> so it's like they passed right in that moment. And then literally the next day or, or within a couple of days, you had someone say, actually, I would love to buy this. Yeah. And I, and yeah. I know you had some other offers to, to lease it, but I think it's so funny that that fast you had so many additional offers in. You, I mean, you thought it was done. You weren't even accepting backup offers. And so yep. that's the, uh, that's that deal you're in. You're going to do quite well. This sale, this sale that's coming is fantastic. So Yeah, I love that. So <laughs> yep. help pay for those trips you're going on. <laughs> that's right. That's right. I like that. I, I love the whole idea of, of living a life on your terms and being proactive and, and having a life by design. It can happen in any any sense of the way that you set it up if you're going to carve the time out to do it. But I love having passive investments, just assets, producing income, producing cash flow or quick turns on mm -hmm. capital where you get your money back right away. I love that. Uh, that to me is the most fun way to live and to travel is when you can do it on income that is not 
costing you time. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, for that, you got to find the right operators. And you were talking, I didn't even answer your question earlier about monthly updates. Man, in my mind, we're, we're managing people's money. There's a huge amount of trust that goes into it. And the least we can do is tell them what's going on. And many of our updates, I mean, we've got buildings that are on 10-year leases. The update is all is well, you know, <laughs> nothing's happened, everything's good, but you still get to hear from us. There's no reason why you shouldn't. Call me up. Happy to go tour the site with you. You know, we got our rent check again from the the county or the, you know, the credit tenant that we've got in there and nothing's happened. So, well, I love that. I like, again, just frequent communication. I think that's great. And then when there are issues, you spell them out. You let people know. You let them know right away. I think you build trust when you are transparent. That's huge. So how did you get back in the game? I mean, that's a big blow what happened back in, in 07, 08. Like, how did you get back in and say, you know what, I've learned the lessons, let's do it. And then how did you decide my niche market is gonna be class B industrial inside of two main markets <laughs> in Texas. And by the way, we just watched a documentary. I shared it with the Lifestyle Investors that is like, you know, how Texas is the, yeah, the I saw know, that. eighth largest economy in yep. the world and, and all the things that are happening here and just a great place to invest. But I'd love to hear your, your thought process on, on how you came to A, Harbor Capital and, and getting back in the game and B, this niche market that you're in and then C, the locations that you're in. Yeah, not a straight line, much, uh, a lot of winding along that path. Took a while actually with where my wife wanted to go do something different and I'm thankful for it. We went and started an orphanage in Ethiopia. I ended up living there for six years, but while we were there, I started a business there and ended up selling that business in 2019. And so that was another actually kind of a, a conglomerate of a few different businesses, agricultural arm, medical arm, and then also real estate. Real estate was the biggest. So we were building apartment buildings for the US government. You know, these were kind of 150 to $200 million a piece, just big behemoth uh, apartments that the U.S. government needed for staff housing. But they didn't have anyone there that, you know, they didn't have any way to buy something that they knew was going to be seismically safe and safe for, for the residents there. So we kind of came in and, and filled a niche. And so I exited that business in 2019, took a little bit of time. It was actually the end of 2019. So really a couple more months before the pandemic, which kind of perfect timing for us had, you know, just had this big exit, was able to take some time off and be with the kids and not have the pressure during the pandemic and then figure out what was next. I'd been an LP, you know, it, it's not that dissimilar. A residential deal is structured very similar to an industrial deal from a, you know, capital stack and different LLCs for every entity and just the way the whole thing is structured for tax efficiency and whatnot. But I'd been an LP in some industrial deals and just loved the simplicity of how they were ran and operated and loved that it was kind of a, a market that was being ignored. I felt like residential had, you know, everybody kind of thinks of residential as, as the way to start in real estate and you end up in multifamily before too long. And so this is kind of one of those fun markets off to the side that I knew we could come in and dominate. And for me, you know, I, I want to build a big business. I've, I've got no desire to sit home and count dollars. I want to leave a, a legacy business that is building, you know, generational wealth for everyone on my team and also for thousands of investors. And so I knew I wanted it to be something big. And and this was something that had a lot of runway. You know, we eventually we will outgrow these markets, but it's, it's going to happen a lot later than I originally thought. I thought we might get a year down the road and find that we just 
didn't have any other opportunities in these cities. We're two years in now in Harbor Capital and finding that we're just scratching the surface. There's all kinds of opportunities in these markets. So we'll be here for years. Oh, it's great to hear. So I'm curious, you know, what made you out of everything decide industrial? And and by the way, it was a good pick because industrial for the last five years has been the best performing real estate asset class out there. So you put everything you know, out there, and, and this has had some of the largest growth, some of the best performance, some of the lowest defaults. I mean, this has just been a great real estate asset class. So had you looked at some of that data to kind of figure that out or? Certainly. I mean, it's this funnel for me, you know, first of all, it was definitely real estate. I did not want to go do something outside of real estate. And then having done that business in Ethiopia while We'd lived there for six years, but then had four years that we lived in Texas and we're still running that business over there and the nonprofit. I was traveling a ton, which was a huge stress on the family. And so kind of set this boundary around home saying, I want to be home by dinner. Where can we invest and still have that goal met? for a lifestyle? You know, we wanted to have a good lifestyle and I wanted to be there for the rest of my kids being at home which is amazing how fast that's going. It seems like they're, they've got one foot out the door already. Taking those two things into account, you know, there's not really a bunch of different options within real estate that work. And then, like I said, I did not want to kind of follow the herd and go where everyone else was. And so industrial was a great, a great one that I felt like there was a lot of opportunity. I think I misjudged the opportunity and thought it, it was a lot, but it did not understand just understand just how much opportunity there actually is. So bigger, which is great. I love it. That's awesome. And really, like you kind of niche down into class B. So yeah. I'm investing with another group that does only class A and they okay. do class A builds. They'll yeah. well, they'll they'll buy existing and then they do class A development. And then I invest with another group in industrial that really only acquires existing, but I mean, it is almost exclusively class A. So how did you come to class B being the thing? I mean, obviously that in itself is going to create a little bit less competition, right? I think the, the sexier the asset or the asset class, the nicer the building, the nicer the, the asset is, I think it, it just kind of attracts more investors. It definitely attracts the institutional grade investors. And I know it probably is good to, you know, not be in competition with them, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. I think the only way to make money, and we do some class A as well. We have about 550,000 square feet that is under construction on our behalf. So we're not the builder or developer, but we're buying it. We bought it on a forward. So we bought it almost a year ago before it had broken ground. And then now it's almost finished. It's going to be done within the next month here. And then we're going to we're going to own it all. So we're taking up the leasing risk, but none of the construction risk, which has turned out to be an incredibly, incredibly good bet because construction costs have gone up quite a bit since then. And the demand is just incredible. Both of those are in Katy, Texas, which is growing, growing like crazy. So perfectly timed product. It's working out, working out really well. The class A, class B question. I think that for us, I want to be able to add value. I want to come into a building or come into an, an investment and know that something of my doing is what adds the value there. I don't want to just sit and wait for the market. If I'm going to do that, I might as well just invest in the S&P and go home. 
Because sure, you can kind of pick a neighborhood and see that it's probably going to do better, but you're not assured that you're going to be right. You just kind of never know. And you're waiting for others to do their work. I would rather go in and know that I'm underpaying because X, Y, and Z. In class A, you can do that by developing because you're basically taking that development risk and that development risk pays well. I don't want to be a builder though. I don't like taking, I don't think those are all the same type of risks, construction costs, land development. I don't want, you know, I kind of got to a point in my career where I'm saying, Hey, I actually want to go where the easier money is. And I, and I very much think the easier money is to be found when you buy something that's existing. And there's just a lot more class B for sale. Class A, you're typically going to be buying from an institutional and they're, not going to be selling for less than the market very often. It's pretty rare for that to happen. Where in class B, you know, we always joke that our favorite sellers are conspiracy theorists, <laughs> <laughs> which is shockingly true how many of the properties we've bought have been from people who were closing in on retirement and read some, I mean, I'm not kidding, QAnon post or something that told them that interest rates were going to do something crazy tomorrow or China's taking over the world or Biden's got some problem or Trump's got some problem. You know, it's like yeah, on any end of these political spectrums, a lot of these sellers just they're not sophisticated enough to hold these properties. And all of a sudden they're like, I've got to sell this thing today. This is kind of funny. The other thing about conspiracy theorists that holds true is they don't, they're distrustful of experts. And so when a broker comes to them and says, hey, I think your property's worth this much, you should sell to me and give me 6%. They're like, no, 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 no. I know better. <laughs> I'm not going to give you all this, you know, 200000 or $300,000 worth of commission for selling my property. I'm going to sell my property by myself here. So get out of my way. I'm going to do this on my own. That's pretty funny. And it's it's great. It creates that market for you. You buy a lot of deals off market. You buy a lot of deals that you know, are just direct with the seller, right? I mean, th there are several stories that I've heard. And, and by the way, for me, the same thing. I mean, I've bought almost every one of my properties from a mom and pop baby boomer about to retire and really just wanting a different season of life and probably valuing that relationship of who they sell with over a lot of the other criteria uh, for why they would sell or who they would sell to, right? That quality of relationship is important. Do they like you? Okay, well, they're going to find a way to get the deal done with you then. Right, right. It's true. Yeah, we were just doing our, this morning, we were doing our deal flow pipeline meeting. We've got $74 million worth of properties under contract. 100% of them are off-market properties. Everything we're buying right wow. now is completely off-market. So it's incredible. And so do you see this slowing down anytime? I mean, we we hear these talks about how we're in a recession, we're about to be in a recession, that the recession started however many months ago, you know, at some point last year, based on different criteria used to come up, you know, come to that conclusion, right? Yeah. What do you think moving forward? Is this still, I mean, obviously you're in it and you're, you've got deals under contract right now, so I, I know you like it, but moving forward, you still this See, you still see this being one of the leaders like it has been for the last five years? Texas, 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 Texas. I mean, that's my answer. Hey, we're, we have this massive port that's doing uh, like two and a half times the volume now that it was doing pre-COVID in shipping container volume. Just the Dallas-Fort Worth airport, the amazing amounts of oil money that sits in, in wealth in this country. Houston has... 
I forget the exact number, but it's like uh, it's like 40 percent of the top the Fortune 500 companies have a headquarter office headquarter or main office in Houston. Like there's just an incredible amount of diversity. The fact that we've got Mexico right there, which is this trading, this kind of perfectly balanced trading partner. They're stable enough. They hungry to, to produce goods and services. We can ship directly across the, you know, you can like drive right across the border with with all kinds of, you know, supplies back and forth. San Antonio is only two hours from the closest border to Mexico. Like, it's just incredible. We've got demographics. You've got, I mean, as much as the Texas politicians complain about immigration, immigration is one of the best things about Texas is you've got people coming in ready, hungry, want to work, which gives you the labor force to be able to be a main manufacturing hub for the country. I mean, I don't think there is a state that has any of these kind of geographical and demographic benefits that Texas does. And then, you know, we can kind of harp on the politics as though nobody's perfect and Texas is, is far from it, but it is a very open state for business and allows a lot of people to come in. And, you know, if you want to start a business here, many of our businesses that rent from us are from California and Illinois, these places that are kind of hard to work in. And they, I mean, you, you should see their faces when these owners come in and rent, you know, they'll rent 20,000 square feet from us and start operating. And they're like, you mean I got my business permit in a day and no one's coming and telling me how to run my business? Like, this is incredible. <laughs> like, and a lot of times their whole staff is, or many of their staff are moving with them because they want to move somewhere where the cost of living is lower. There's no state income tax. I mean, it's just an incredible, incredible benefit. So do I think the industrial boom is going to kind of has this indefinite run? No, I don't. I think many other states are already seeing a softening and that's probably going to continue. But I think Texas has got a lot, a lot more gas in the tank. Yeah, I tend to agree with you. I'm a huge fan of Texas, uh, you know, from an investment standpoint. I mean, I live here as well as do you, but just where my dollars go, this is an economy that is growing, that is vibrant. And it is mind boggling to me that you have these states like California and New York that are, and, and Illinois, that are raising your tax rate, they're making it more difficult to conduct business. They're making yeah, it yeah. Uh, like it, it is hard to do business in these places. Like I, I, I have businesses and real estate I've wanted to do, but because of location, I've said no. Yeah. And it's like, how do these states and, and these state representatives not figure out the fact that they're losing, they're raising, their goal is like, let's raise this up so we can get more tax revenue, except that they're losing all the big tax revenue, mm -hmm. right? They're losing it corporately. They're losing it from their ultra high net worth individuals that are moving to, you know, Florida, Texas, Tennessee, a handful of other states. But what they don't get is like simple to me, like simple economics. Yeah. I mean, Texas is attracting all the businesses because there's no state income tax. Yeah. So don't you want a smaller piece of a bigger pie? Like, that's what I want. Yeah. I don't understand how. Absolutely. I don't want the biggest slice of a small pie. Yeah. Or a shrinking pie. Well, so and one of the problems in Texas has been that the property taxes are fairly high and kind of uncapped. And so, I mean, we've got properties where we've had just massive tax increases. So that's another reason why I haven't even talked about this, but another reason why we love industrial is those taxes are passed on to the tenant. So we don't actually pay our own property taxes. The tenant does. And so if a rate goes up next year, it, it gets passed through per the lease. But 
the Texas legislature is now working on a, a, a new law that would cap the increases, which would be incredible. Yeah, that's awesome. What about depreciation? There's all kinds of great depreciation opportunities in, in real estate and, and specifically in industrial. Yeah. So we take the full accelerated depreciation. We do cost seg studies on every property and we pass that through to investors. So often, you know, they'll have these massive negative K1 in, in the first year. It's funny. Sometimes we'll get a really inexperienced investor and they'll call us up, you know, maybe they just sold a business or something and had a lot of money and didn't quite understand how the tax code works. And they'll call us up and say, you know, I gave you $100,000. Why on earth did you guys lose $55,000 in the first year? Like what happened here? Like, no, 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 this is a good thing. Like you want a negative K-1. This is going to offset other income. We're actually just taking this depreciation as quick as we can because we want to pass through to you as much of that as we can. Yeah, one of the greatest benefits of real estate is the accelerated depreciation, this bonus depreciation that we're able to now take right out of the gate. So instead of waiting 27 and a half years for straight line depreciation over that period of time or or the various different ones, the part of the reason I like mobile home parks so much is because it's 15 year straight line depreciation. So you're getting more depreciation in a shorter period of time. But when you do the the cost seg studies, you can do this bonus depreciation and take what would be, you know, 27 years and fast forward it into one year and offset uh, maybe a really high income year. And there are ways that you can get like real estate professional status so that you can have the depreciation offset your active income. Yep. Right. Yep. There's certain That's hurdles true. you have to meet and talk to your CPA about that. I, obviously, I, you know, we're talking as as friends and this is not yes, financial this advice, is not tax but, advice. <laughs> but this has been a huge source of, of tax savings for me over the years being a real estate professional. It's incredible. Yeah, that's so cool. So where can we learn more about you and, and Harbor Capital? I'm on Twitter a lot at Levi James here. It's called it's my my Twitter handle there. I, I love I actually have found a thriving community of an, of real estate investors on Twitter. And I'm just kind of sharing the playbook on there always. So that's been a real fun source for us. Uh, harborcap.com is our website. You can sign up on there and, and get on our list and see the deals that are coming down the pipeline. We have a big one that you and I were talking about the other day coming. That's a, a big portfolio. It's $55 million worth of, of opportunity zone assets that we're, we're purchasing right now. So we're really excited. The opportunity zone, another one, talk to your tax professional, get to understand that, that opportunity zone law. Cause it's, it's amazing. It can really help. Yeah, opportunity zones are incredible. You got to be careful that the tail doesn't wag the dog where you just get into a deal because it's an opportunity zone. But if you have capital gains that you want to defer, opportunity zones are a great way to do it. So that, that is really cool. And, you know, one thing I'd love to kind of wrap up on is why did you choose to join the Lifestyle Investor Mastermind? I mean, there's a lot of other groups that you're part of, a lot of other networks that you're in. You run in some pretty incredible circles already. I'm curious why Lifestyle Investor was the choice for you. Honestly, you and I connected and it was like this, whatever this guy's doing, let's let's chive in. <laughs> I feel like I, I feel like I need a better answer. I did not know the full extent of kind of what would what was offered. It was just that we met and it made a lot of sense. And it was like, hey, this could be a really fun uh, community to get to know. And it has been. I mean, the people in Austin are great. The 
deal flow, just getting to understand, kind of meet other people and see what, what people are doing has been been fantastic. So certainly worth it. Yeah. Well, I'm so excited you're part of the tribe and, you know, so many people get uh, exposure to you and what you're doing. And um, I love ending every podcast episode with a question to, you know, our audience here, those that are tuning in for our episode and that question is this, what's one step that you can take today to move towards financial freedom, move towards a life that's on your terms that you truly desire? And what is one piece that we can take today that is maybe holding you back from financial freedom that today, you know, this content can allow you to move in that direction? So life by default converted to life by design. Thanks so much. Appreciate you being here and we'll catch everyone else next week. Awesome. Thanks for listening to the Lifestyle Investor Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to subscribe so future episodes are automatically downloaded directly to your device. You can also leave an honest rating and review over on iTunes. Not only do I read every single one, but it also helps me understand what content matters the most to our audience. And if you can think of one or two people who would benefit from this episode, would you mind sharing it with them right now? Who knows? Maybe they'll buy you something nice when they make their first million. If you would like access to today's show notes, including links to all resources mentioned, visit www.lifestyleinvestor.com. Thanks again for listening, and I'll catch you next week for another episode of The Lifestyle Investor. This podcast is being made available exclusively to financially sophisticated, high net worth individuals capable of evaluating the merits and risks of investments. The material presented in this podcast is not intended to be investment advice or to recommend the purchase or sale of any security, nor is it intended to be legal, accounting, or tax advice. You should consult with your legal, tax, or financial advisor in connection with any material discussed on this podcast. Past performance is not indicative nor a guarantee of future results. Certain materials discussed on this podcast may have been prepared by third parties, which have been obtained from sources that we believe to be accurate and current. However, we make no representation or warranty as to the accuracy, completeness, or currency of such materials.